Hello and welcome to the podcast Terrorism and Political Violence, a podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. This podcast is comprised of two types of episodes. In Issues Up Close, editors of the TPV journal will discuss a range of subjects from prominent issues covered by the journal, such as the history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence, and major global trends and threats. In our Book Talks episodes, editors will host conversations with experts from across the field to discuss their current work. In today's episode, TPV editor Orla Lynch interviews Dr. Sarah Marsden and Dr. James Lewis on the subject of trauma, adversary, and violent extremism. We hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome to this edition of the Terrorism and Political Violence podcast. My name is Orla Lynch, and today I'm joined by two colleagues, uh, James Lewis and Sarah Marsden from my own alma mater, the Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St Andrews in Scotland. Uh, Dr James Lewis is a research fellow at CSTPV, and his recent research examines how secondary schools in England are enacting the prevent duty. Now, James's work focuses on international approaches to preventing and countering violent extremism, and he's currently working on a Campbell Systematic Review, which will examine the effectiveness of case management for CVE interventions. Now, alongside this, he's also working on a research project that explores the relationship between trauma and adversity and violent extremism. Dr. Sarah Marsden is a senior lecturer also at CSTPV, and she recently joined St. Andrews after five years in the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion at Lancaster University in the UK. Um, And her research and teaching take an interdisciplinary approach to radical and violent politics. Her work on political contention takes a participatory approach, engaging with a wide range of stakeholders, so including government bodies, arts organizations, charities and community-led groups, with an aim really of developing real-world solutions to complex social issues. Current projects include a body of work on violent extremism, um, and that's carried out through the Centre for Research and Evidence on Security Threats, also known as CREST, and that has a focus on counter-extremism, reintegration and overall disengagement processes. So the work we're going to discuss today focuses on this trauma, adversity and violent extremism area, particularly addressing issues such as uh, trauma-informed interventions with violent extremists and how we should think about trauma in the broader ecosystem of violent extremism. So both Sarah and James are currently leading on a project that brings together a multidisciplinary community of researchers and practitioners with an interest in trauma, so thereby providing a forum for different fields and disciplines to engage on the issue of trauma and ultimately develop recommendations for how research and practice should advance. So Sarah, I might start with you. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work on trauma? Thanks, Ola, and thanks very much for the invitation to come and talk about some of the research. Um, So yeah, that's right. For Um, little over a year, James and I have been working on a number of projects really which have been concerned with understanding the relationships between trauma, adversity and violent extremism. As you say, funded by CREST but also more recently also supported by the UK's Prison and Probation Service. So through that work we've been really trying to map the evidence base to try and explore the ways in which experiences of trauma and adversity might shape pathways into terrorism 
as well as identifying the implications of those processes for interventions and efforts to really divert or support people in the move away from violent extremism. So we've been doing a lot of work uh, synthesising the evidence on trauma and adversity as it pertains to violent extremism, as well as trying to look for lessons in the wider literature and the wider research on violent offending and the role of trauma in kind of comparable kinds of crime. So the outcome of that hopefully will be a systematic review of the research in this area and we're going to hope to try and analyse those findings in relation to existing models of radicalisation and mobilisation because we want to really understand how and where the overlaps and where the gaps are between these different bodies of work. So the aim is to try and develop sort of conceptual insights as to where and how trauma and adversity are relevant as well as mapping how strong the evidence is across different areas of that work. So as you say we've been really fortunate to bring together the um, others working on this subject. So we've had a series of workshops over the last few months and really benefited from developing and engaging with what's become an international, really multidisciplinary network of clinicians, practitioners, policymakers and researchers who are interested in these ideas. So our aim is really through this phase of research to create a more comprehensive understanding of how trauma and adversity are relevant to terrorism and hope to, in that way, provide a platform for future work in the area. And how did your experience doing other research on terrorism and political violence, how did it lead you here? It's been really interesting, actually, because um, this work has been informed in large part by practitioners' interests. So the understanding and the concerns that they have about perhaps taking a broader approach to account for a wider range of factors than is perhaps reflected in existing approaches to interpreting risk and developing interventions. And their concerns and the way that they sort of relate to some of the more long-standing areas of research that I've been focused on in recent years. So as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last few years has been focused on questions of disengagement and reintegration and that's been oriented around a series of ideas and they seem to be echoed actually in the research and practice on trauma and trauma-informed approaches and I guess if I were to sort of try and sum those synergies up, first it's that sort of the benefits that come from taking a more holistic or contextualised approach to understanding engagement and disengagement processes. So going beyond individual level risk factors, thinking about these processes over a longer time frame, um, as well as sort of foregrounding the social and ecological context that individuals are situated in. So shifting the emphasis away from the individual and recognising those wider historical, political, socio-cultural and relational factors that can lead people to seeing violence as an appropriate way of achieving their goals, fulfilling their needs. Um, and second, I think also a lot of the work that I've been doing more recently and some of the work that James and I are doing as well is looking at the value of strengths-based approaches to desistance, to reintegration, and the way that they sort of foreground protective factors and the internal and external features of someone's environment that make it possible for them to pursue meaningful pro-social positive lives. And of course, conversely, what can happen when those factors and those protections aren't in place, which is often the case with those who find themselves um, encountering trauma and adversity in their lives and from some of the research that we've um, been looking at, how that can shape pathways into extremism. But I think also underpinning kind of trauma-informed approaches is a really sort of clear commitment to a set of ethical principles and ethical research and ethical practice that avoids harm as a, you know, kind of a primary aim and is aware of the kind of potential for re-traumatisation as well as being committed to sort of providing support for reintegration, disengagement, um, that's mindful of those broader normative, political and social challenges that people face. So I think it's been interesting, as I say, to sort of 
bring the interest that practitioners have into dialogue with some of those more long-standing concerns that I've been exploring in my work over recent years. I think it's very interesting that you, what you mentioned there, the kind of larger ecosystem, because trauma, of course, um, for those of us who are not necessarily working directly in this field, it's often associated with mental health intervention. So the individual, perhaps the family systems type approach, but the things you mentioned there, transgenerational issues, vicarious trauma, those are those are the realities we're talking about here in this type of research, right? Exactly. And I think that one of the benefits of that wider body of work that, is, you know, as you mentioned, looks beyond just those kind of singular high impact events that we tend to associate with trauma is really valuable for this sort of um, question, the questions we're concerned with in relation to terrorism and political violence, because it does take that broader view to recognise that adversity in childhood has developmental effects, that some of those effects aren't understood by the individuals themselves, that they unfold over longer periods of time, as well as being informed, as you say, by those wider community, collective and intergenerational processes that we're really now just beginning to unpack in terms of the research literature and the way that that might help us understand these broader socio-political and historical processes which shape um, pathways and understandings of the need for terrorism and political violence. So as you say, I think um, there is that sort of perception that trauma can and is a mental health problem which is sort of situated in the individual but this wider research is really providing kind of tools and concepts and ideas to broaden that out so that we take that wider social ecological perspective. And it's quite interesting there you mentioned kind of antecedent factors so you know developmental trauma and but also you mentioned the whole criminal justice process so I mean it's probably not unreasonable to say that prison is a traumatizing experience and the reality of dealing with desistance and uh, you know disengagement and de-radicalization is those factors have to come into play you know if you're taking a holistic and an ethical approach to to understanding this process so I suppose how how do you deal with that we know an awful lot about trauma and prison and and has that featured in your research and your work so far Yes. Um, actually, James might be well placed to speak to this because one of the approaches we've been trying to take is understanding the time at which trauma or adversity is experienced and the role that that plays. So we've looked at kind of pre-engagement, engagement and this process of disengagement and the criminal justice system's role in that. So, James, I don't know if you've got sort of thoughts about how we've been approaching some of those more fine-grained questions about the influences and the impacts on people of criminal justice processes, but also of the kind of the wider disengagement process. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, part of the puzzle, really, because a lot of the research that looks at trauma in this context, at least that I was aware of before this project, was talking about the trauma linked to engagement and violent extremism. So thinking about things like PTSD amongst returning foreign fighters, for example, and the extent to which engagement itself was a traumatising experience and how you might take account of that in interventions. But as we've taken this broader focus, we've started to think about the types of traumas that exist in the post-disengagement period. So not just the idea that perhaps disengagement from violent extremism itself might be a traumatising experience as you lose the support of your previous sort of collective identity, but also, as you say, the way in which kind of contact with the authorities or, or you know, arrest or... Um, any number of those kind of experiences might themselves contribute to trauma and perhaps pre exacerbate pre-existing conditions as well. So I think that's one of the, the real illuminating aspects of this project is thinking, as, as Sarah says, about the different stages of life and different stages of engagement at which trauma might be relevant and how they might intersect. So it really is a lifespan approach that you're taking when you think about, about trauma in this context? I, I, I think so, yes. And it's thinking about 
I think a lot of the focus at the moment, as I mentioned, is thinking about, for example, how do we deal with the trauma of people who return from conflict zones? And I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle. And for some people, that, those experiences will be their, the primary source of any symptoms of trauma that, that exist in once they return. But actually, in some people, those experiences might exacerbate pre-existing conditions that, that first occurred pre-engagement, and they might be exacerbated by the post-disengagement period as well. So it's taking that real life course approach I think has been really really interesting to me so it's like the idea that it's dose dependent so you know the more trauma you have the more it builds up and and you're kind of count you're talking about you know early childhood experiences developmental experiences you know the group itself the doing of the violence and then the process of disengaging and across all of those those kind of key points trauma is part of should be part of the way we think about it I think definitely the research points to this idea of there being a cumulative mm-hmm. effect, not so much in the sense that we sort of might quantify it in terms of, you know, that the more trauma you have, the more likely you are to be affected by it. But the idea that the way in which you respond to previous experiences of trauma might influence how you respond to future experiences of trauma in a way that might have this cumulative effect. And I think people like Stephen Windish and Pete Simi have talked about this, this sort of downward spiral whereby there can be this cumulative effect over the life course that can lead to a range of maladaptive outcomes of which engagement in violent extremism might be one. Okay. Okay. And back to Sarah, your work, I suppose, you know, you have, you have a a variety of backgrounds in terms of discipline, but it's inherently interdisciplinary. And um, you also mentioned that you take a participatory approach. So how does this play out when it comes to this research on trauma? I think that sort of broader perspective of recognising the benefits of different disciplinary um, concepts, ideas and research is really valuable for this space, not least because of the different languages and the different concepts that are at work. So um, psychologists, clinical psychologists, political scientists, sociologists will all approach these questions with different concepts, theories, ideas, and some of the some of the time they don't always speak to each other. So being kind of alert to the need to think in interdisciplinary terms has been really, really helpful. Um, you know, core questions about how to think about causality and how appropriate that is in this context. Broader kind of epistemological questions have come to the fore. And I think having that sensitivity to broader disciplinary perspectives has been really, really helpful. Um, it makes as alert to the challenges um, and the need to sort of provide foundations to work collectively around these issues. Um, and I think those sort of questions also draw attention to the importance of focusing on the process of the research as well as the outcome. So having that more kind of process-oriented participatory approach which recognise the benefits of understanding those different points of view and developing a sort of a shared set of aims or a shared language at least so that people can talk across those disciplines has been really important um and i think for us as well it's been really really valuable working with um, non-academics and bringing them in in a more transdisciplinary way actually so recognizing the expertise and value that they bring and bringing that into dialogue with more kind of concrete academic research all of which um, has sort of enriched I think it's fair to say our understanding in terms of the project but hopefully makes the outcomes more um, helpful and more relevant to real world challenges Um, I think you know there's a broader question about working in community contexts so um, working with and alongside um, those who have been impacted by trauma and adversity and um, that's work that I've done less of in relation to this particular space or this particular set of research questions. But I think that the broader kind of commitments of trauma-informed approaches so that you do trauma work and you ask trauma question, questions about trauma in a trauma-informed way is really important. So 
that sort of draws attention to some of those principles about creating safe spaces for people to share their concerns, to talk about their experiences and feed into the research process where and how they feel that that's appropriate. As I say, I've not done as much of that in this space so far, but I can certainly see how the benefits of that broader set of commitments that trauma-informed approaches hold can be really valuable. And I think, you know, work of Heidi Ellis and, and her colleagues in the States have drawn attention to the potential of that um, of the insights that are possible from that and the ethical um, dimensions that are important to doing research in really quite challenging contexts and with people who have faced really tri- quite challenging events. You, and you mentioned shared aims there and that's a really interesting point because working with practitioners like psychiatrists or clinical psychologists, you know, fundamentally the aims of researchers and academics may not overlap. And I mean, what's your experience of managing those very different aims um, within a group such as the trauma and adversity group? Um, I think it's been really interesting. I think we've, I mean, certainly in terms of the work we've been doing so far, we've really benefited from a, a genuinely constructive and collegiate group of people who care about helping people fundamentally. Um, they care about understanding the evidence that helps to um, shape interventions and shape practice and there's a willingness to sort of understand and speak across those disciplinary boundaries but I think that there always are going to be some tensions in terms of as you say the sort of the ambitions of different kinds of practitioners even within practitioner settings of course um, you know those who are involved in the police might differ in their emphasis in relation to those concerned with probation or reintegration or intervention providers so again providing space for people to kind of air those issues but also find productive and constructive ways of coming around similar aims. So that kind of commitment to public protection, the commitment to trying to help people live more fulfilling pro-social lives, those sort of higher order aims can sometimes help orient people around a shared question or a shared interest. Um, But I think those tensions are always going to be important to bring into the process. So not assume that everybody's going to be working towards comparable goals, but instead surface those and provide opportunities to sort of talk about things from their own point of view. And through that, move forward with a better understanding of everybody's perspectives. And you mentioned there, you mentioned trauma-informed. So you're asking questions in a trauma-informed way and you mentioned trauma-informed organisations. So the police could become a trauma-informed organisation or the prison service could become a trauma-informed organisation. Can you just give a very high-level explainer of what that might mean to somebody who hasn't come across the idea? So um, going back to the sort of the original point or one of the original points that you you raised in terms of the perception that we tend to be thinking about trauma in terms of PTSD or kind of clinical depression or these more kind of concrete factors and um, this broader kind of trauma-informed perspective. And um, perhaps the most sort of useful way of thinking about that is that more trauma-focused work is dealing directly with um, diagnosed conditions like PTSD, providing CBT, exposure therapy, other kinds of therapy which deal directly with that. Whereas trauma-informed approaches are much broader. So broadly speaking, they first of all recognise the prevalence of trauma in society. Um, Some sort of large-scale international research suggests that perhaps 70% of us have encountered or experienced a traumatic event. So first of all, just recognising the fact that that is a significant part of people, a lot of people's lives. And second, recognising that those organisations therefore have got a responsibility to respond, to take account of that trauma in all of their work. And that also recognising that trauma has a wide range of effects, behavioural effects, psychological effects, social effects and so on. And so that a trauma-informed 
workplace or a trauma-informed organisation is aware of that it, and it is then committed to this broader set of principles, as I say, around creating safe spaces for people, working collaboratively in a way that supports empowerment and agency and choice. And through that, being really alert to the potential for re-traumatisation and resisting that potential. So putting everything in place so that um, those people, the clients that they're working with, whoever that is, whether that's in an education context or a, a health and social care context, are alert to that possibility and do all they can to avoid it. So recognising the prevalence, realising the need to respond, recognising the range of different experiences people will have had and then resisting the potential for re-traumatisation through this commitment to this wider set of practices. And in practical terms, that looks like training. It looks like raising awareness. It looks like making sure that the appropriate language and systems are in place so that the potential for re-traumatisation or harm is reduced. And how do we reconcile that with the kind of dominant frameworks around terrorism and extremism, the, the frameworks of risk, you know, um, the, how do we take this, how do we advocate for a trauma-informed approach when, when, when the, the dominant traditional um, kind of frameworks are very, very different? It's a really important question and it's one that we keep working through all the time. Um, so the first thing is to be really alert to those differences and to those tensions. So being aware of the fact that if people hear the language of trauma, that can sometimes feel really challenging in the context of perpetrators of terrorism and that some people might see that as a, an excuse or a way of condoning victimisation. Um, but also recognising that those debates are much longer standing, both in research and in practice, that we've been talking about this challenge of if you try and understand what happened to somebody, does that mean you're excusing what they did? And knowing alongside that, that there are significant benefits with understanding those processes, benefits to helping um, reduce the potential for harm, increase public protection, lower risk and so on. Um, but also recognising that some of these approaches have been used with some really high risk offenders, with sex offenders, with violent offenders, and that practitioners and researchers don't assume that that is excusing violence. And I think um, it's all, uh, I, I would say, part of a broader, that emphasis on shifting away from this very, very strong emphasis on risk. Um, this approach provides support for that, both because it brings in a broader evidence base. It is it, and it can be very strengths-oriented. There are risks of stigmatisation and there are risks of securitising mental health problems, which are really important to be alert to. Um, and I think that really is an important element of this work moving forward, that that doesn't become an issue. That becomes... Um, practitioners and researchers are really alert to that challenge of not securitising or further stigmatising people who have already had really challenging experiences. Um, but that broader strengths-based approach that tries to find ways of enabling people to pursue goods in positive and pro-social ways that enables them to fulfil their needs without harming others. Um, and that wider social-ecological approach all seem to me to be pushing in the same direction, which is to augment that dominant emphasis on risk, managing um, individuals with this deeply kind of security focused lens. So I think there's a lot there to take across, but all of that needs to be done in a really sensitive and thoughtful way. Yeah, I think like the, the idea of this interdisciplinarity, that's really at its centre. And, um, you know, you mentioned from, you know, the, the kind of clinical aspect, the diagnostic aspect. And then, James, you are kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, so to speak. You come from this international relations, international security perspective. And and how does that inform how, how you think about trauma and extremism and political violence? 
So I think one of the most interesting aspects of the project for me has been realising just how broadly I think trauma is discussed in the broader broader research on international security. And actually, when you look deeper in within research on terrorism and political violence, so when you look at research on radicalisation that was published towards the start of the 21st century, people were already talking about trauma in some way, although it wasn't as much as an explicit focus as it is today. So there's probably a lot of evidence within my own field, and I guess the subfield of terrorism and political violence, that we can draw on here that might be relevant to understanding you know, why trauma might be relevant. And I think one of the most obvious overlaps is between our work and, and work that's looked at the relevance of trauma and trauma-informed care and interventions in post-conflict societies. And also, I think you'll know that literature better than I will. But I think there's a lot of learning to be taken from how trauma is understood and conceptualised in those contexts. So, as I mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of discussion about how we might apply lessons from post-conflict interventions um, to interventions working with uh, returnees from conflict zones today um, in terms of dealing with the lasting effects of trauma that, that conflict experiences might have had as well as potentially, and it's somewhat contentious, I suppose, rehabilitating those individuals um, if, it, if, it, if it's possible. Now, that second point, I think, speaks to, to Sarah's earlier point about the sensitivities around this language. So I think a lot of the discussion around uh, trauma in this context is focused on uh, women, and, women and child returnees from Syria and Iraq. And I think that speaks to the idea that perhaps we're more willing to talk about trauma with that cohort than with, than with males um, who we may be less sympathetic towards. And it speaks to those broader sensitivities about, you know, is, is trauma too sympathetic a term? But I think the fact that sort of trauma-informed approaches have been used in sort of DDR interventions in, in conflict societies suggests that there are some obvious lessons we might be able to draw across. But I think the, the broader point that, that Sarah makes, I think, is really important. I think there's lessons from within, within my own field and our, and our respective fields, but the multidisciplinary approach is really important because... Speaking from my own perspective, it's quite easy to think about trauma, as Sarah mentioned, in terms of conflict, in terms of forced, you know, forced migration, in terms of PTSD. But it's really been through engaging with the wider network and reading broader research that we start to think about these broader forms of trauma, like adverse childhood experiences and the more developmental and subclinical effects that I think are really, really important. So whilst I think it's important to reflect learning from your own field, I think it, there's so much to learn from colleagues working in other spaces that... that that's what I found really rewarding about this this broader project. I think you make an important point there about post post conflict societies. You know, you, you look at, for example, Northern Ireland, and you look at suicide rates, and you look at kind of individual data on mental health and the post conflict manifestations of these individual mental health conditions. And then you talk about you know the communal issues, the kind of epidemiological approach to trauma, mm-hmm. and how you know how trauma and post-conflict societies can be understood. And it's much, much more than those individual cases. And I, I suppose you know how do we bring lessons from those very complex environments to what, in all purposes, really in the terrorism literature, are individualized cases of extremism. So how do we how do we map that communal versus individual? Um, narrative that accompanies some of the some of the cases we'd be dealing with. So, from my perspective, and I think it's something that we're trying to to tease out in the in the next stage of research. Is, is we, you mentioned transgenerational, intergenerational trauma earlier. I think that framework of how trauma can be trauma, particularly in post conflict societies, can be transferred across generations is, is quite a useful concept that, that might help us understand how particular experiences get embedded in collective consciousness in a way that, that might, although a very collective experience, might be, you know, be relevant to individual level action. And it's not something that's been explored in too much depth 
I think in so far within the broader violent extremism literature, but it's something that I don't want to speak for Sarah, but I think we both see as being quite a, quite a useful framework for thinking about how um, for embedding individual behaviours and experiences within broader collective um, experiences. And Sarah, sorry, go ahead, Sarah. No, I think that's the point because um, individual trauma and adversity is experienced at the individual level but it is mediated through collective processes and they I think one of the questions that we're really interested in understanding as James says is is how those intergenerational places processes play out so what kind of mechanisms how are they mediated and thinking you know very broadly across multiple layers of analysis so recognizing the you know the kind of biopsychosocial effects, the broader sort of community level effects, as well as those historical processes. So taking it right down, you know, we're, we've been fortunate to in, uh, engage with uh, Mike Nickenchuk, who's based in, in Beyond Conflict, who's a, a neuroscientist, and he draws attention to the changes in the brain and the, cha- the neurological changes, which can be informed by these wider intergenerational processes. And as James says, I think we don't have a very strong evidence base in the terrorism, political violence literature, or more concretely in the violent extremism literature. But there are some really important questions to answer about how those processes are mediated, how they're translated and uh, transformed through narratives, through norms, through cultural processes, and then how they're inflected through the individual and in ways which, you know, in very broad terms can help interpret pathways and, of course, then think about ways of intervening to try and intercede and interrupt those broader intergenerational, transgenerational processes which can lead to harm. So there's a huge number of really complex and sensitive questions which just inherently are interdisciplinary and um, working across different levels of analysis, which require kind of important and thoughtful conceptual work as well as empirical work. And even within, you know, even within the field of psychology, you know, you go from the neuropsychology to the social identity approach and you go from there to competitive victimhood. And, you know, there's so many layers to this. Um, And I suppose the next question I have is kind of, it's all encompassing. It's what are the gaps? Where do we go next? How do we think about this in a way that we can, you know, draw these major concepts together? Well, I think that's the very first task for us, particularly for our research, but it's going to be an ongoing effort because, as you say, the, the sort of the parallels or the, the echoes are wide ranging across a, you know, a, a significant body of work. So our commitment at the moment is to really synthesizing and testing the evidence across those fields so that we don't assume that we, uh, that we're seeing synergies and similarities where they're not. Um, so thinking conceptually about how we bring these bodies of work together as well as testing them. Um, so in the sort of medium to long term actually really interrogating how these processes play out and I think also there are as you've you know you've already mentioned some of the spaces in which um, there are opportunities to pull across insights from the wider literature whether that's the you know the traumatizing effect of criminal justice experiences um, as well as broader interventions at work in wider criminal justice context as James said in wider um, conflict affected societies societies affected by natural disasters and really thinking about kind of what are the genuine insights that interventions in relation to terrorism, political violence and violent extremism might be able to pull over because, of course, it's as important that we don't take the wrong lessons as it is to um, pulling across things that we do think matter. So I think from, you know, as James said, from our point of view, we're interested in those intergenerational processes. Um, Neither of us are clinical psychologists, so we wouldn't want to kind of move into that space. But we feel, I think, from that kind of interdisciplinary perspective that there are 
tools, concepts and ideas that we can bring to bear on those questions about how trauma is transmitted through generations and the mechanisms by which that takes place. But all of the time, we're going to benefit from a wider multi and interdisciplinary community of researchers, of practitioners, of communities who can see the benefits of this sort of approach, um, as well as that more kind of thoughtful and sensitive and ethical perspective, which through which all of this work should be carried out. And just looking at your own work, James, like this is not a psychological problem. Like fundamentally, this is just not a narrow focus on psychology or psychiatry. Um, and how then do you, you know, how do you sell that to a field that fundamentally isn't engaged with that type of literature? That is that is the challenge. And I think one of the one of the things that I'm conscious of in terms of, I guess, research on radicalization more broadly is we, we, we like talking about risk factors and the idea that that um, and trying to find essentially causal links between concepts and, and and we're we're really not trying we're quite cautious in how we talk about causality because it might I don't think it's particularly helpful in the sense that the, one of the things I found particularly interesting about trauma as a concept is is how it can be inherently subjective to the extent that the extent the extent to which an individual experience contributes to psychiatric or psychological issues will very much depend on the individual themselves and the, the context in which they they operate so i think that is the challenge to try and sort of try and move away from that kind of risk assessment risk orientated approach and think more about how individual circumstances individual events matter to individuals in specific contexts. now i think if you draw and you lean on the research on trauma-informed care then there might be something there to help that argument because if you look at the research within trauma-informed care more broadly there's been this shift away from from thinking about things purely in psychological and psychiatric approach um, perspectives and from kind of quantifying the level of trauma as a mechanism for for understanding the risk of a particular outcome. So it's much more about exploring, I guess, the individual, the the, the relevance of an individual experience to the individual. So I think that's a very different perspective than, than we kind of operate within our field, but I think we probably can lean on the broader research to make that point to illustrate how it might be effective. And within the terrorism studies field, I suppose we already have opened the door to discussions on psychopathology and mental health and, you know, the kind of dynamics there, the work of Gill, for example. <clears throat> Does yeah. this feed into that um, in, in, a, in a way as, as an additional element to it, or do you not see it at all in that space? I, oh, sorry, sorry. Um, no, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think, the mental health, the intersection between trauma and mental health is is really interesting, and I think there is research that that has explored, you know, how how sort of issues such as PTSD might might be kind of a mediating factor that that links some experience of trauma to to in you know support for violent extremism, for example. But I think that's only part of the puzzle. And as I say, I think we need to be aware of the mental health question, and in some cases, that will be relevant when talking about trauma. But to my mind, it really is those kind of subclinical, more developmental issues that I find particularly useful for understanding pathways and for, for thinking about trajectories into uh, violent extremism. I think the other thing that this approach sort of offers is a broader perspective on why and how mental health issues come to the fore. So... Um, Naturally, because of the evidence base and because of the need to kind of aggregate and understand 
um, you know, the specific characteristics of individuals, whether those are related to mental health or other kinds of risk factors that we might think of in those terms. What the trauma-informed perspective and that broader kind of approach to understanding the role of trauma and adversity offers is a way of understanding why those become relevant, why they unfold in the way that they do, why we might see them. So rather than just sort of thinking, um, you know, in simplistic terms about the prevalence of a another mental health problem, it's actually asking, well, how did they come to um, embody that? What happened to them? And that's, I think, one of the, you know, kind of different starting points that this perspective offers. Instead of asking what's wrong with you, it asks what happened to you. And not only is that a different starting point in terms of a kind of an ethical perspective on how trauma and adversity might be relevant, but it also invites the question of a broader account of how these processes play out and why and how trauma and adversity might be relevant. So I think it offers that wider perspective, um, which helps contextualise some of those more concrete risk factors um, in a broader landscape of somebody's life, basically. And I think within the terrorism studies literature, we kind of have grappled with that question for a num- for decades at this point. You know, I mean, Horgan talked early on about um, not asking why somebody gets involved in terrorism, but act- asking how they got involved and might not necessarily have, have been trauma focused, but it's that idea that the process um, is, is fundamentally different to any kind of justification or motivational um, so, so do you feel that there is room with existing, within existing frameworks for extremism and radicalization to incorporate this in, um, that it, that it, that there's, there's somewhere it can fit already? I certainly think that there's definitely potential to do that. I mean, essentially, that's what the next phase of our research is asking. It's kind of where does this fit in? So, what what questions can we ask of the radicalization literature when standing? In the, terror, in the trauma and adversity literature to understand how these processes play out and then identifying where those synergies lie. I certainly think it's got promise. Uh, I think it offers that broader set of motivational um, perspectives. I think, as you say, it, it draws attention to the hows, which are actually easier to interpret than individual motivations uh, and those wider kind of dynamics that we tend to think of in terms of radicalization processes. So I definitely think it's got promise, but um, we are sort of um, progressing cautiously. Um, there, you know, the stakes are quite high when thinking about these these ideas. As, you know, we've already mentioned some of the sensitivities around this language, um, and it's not as though I think we would want to say that this was the magic bullet, that this was the overall framework that was going to be able to encompass all of the other elements and research findings in relation to radicalization. And I suppose the question that we're sitting with at the moment is how is it most relevant and where does it feed in in most, uh, in most useful terms? Uh, so yes, I think it's got promise, but we, we need to test it and then um, and proceed cautiously, I think, because at this stage we've, we're getting access to better data, as you say, you know, there's more information evidence about risk factors about processes of engagement and now we need to kind of i think think more broadly about how to conceptualize and theorize those processes but also think carefully about where different models and perspectives overlap and where the greatest kind of explanatory gains are possible through doing that last question i promise so you you mentioned that the crest was um funding some of your research and you also had was it prison and probation uk was funding it and i suppose it's it's interesting to hear that the 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 interest that might exist amongst those practitioner communities for this concept of trauma and i'm just wondering is that the overall sense of your work that practitioners on the front line doing this work doing the doing of counterterrorism and the doing of counter extremism are they interested in this area 
Yes, I think they, they are. I think it's fair to say that a range of different stakeholders, practitioner groups are concerned with understanding how this relates to their practice. Um, and it goes to that sort of broader piece where trauma-informed perspectives are being pulled in across a whole range of different agencies and different sectors, whether that's health and social care, whether that's criminal justice, in terms of education, the um, NGO and charity sector who've been pulling these perspectives in um in their work across a whole range of fields, whether that is, you know, people who are subject to forced migration, conflict-affected societies, but also childhood adversity, um, those who are trying to do violence prevention or violence reduction work, all of these different sectors and agencies are sort of recognising and bringing in more trauma-informed approaches. And I think it's part of a, a broader movement to recognising the benefits of thinking in these terms. And certainly, um, you know, through our experience so far, a wide range of uh, practitioners and policymakers concerned with different questions and in different parts of um, the security and criminal justice context are interested in understanding what they can learn. Uh, you know, quite rightly, there is um, challenge and there is... Um, there are questions that are raised about how and when this is relevant and how much to pull through. Um, but I think the broader interest and commitment in understanding if and how it might be relevant is definitely there. Dr. James Lewis, Dr. Sarah Marsden, thank you for your insights. And that concludes today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Terrorism and Political Violence Journal, Utrecht University, and the hub Security and Open Societies. The sound design was done by Peter Fein. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the description. For now, we thank you very much for listening, and please join us again for the next episode of Terrorism and Political Violence, the podcast. <laughs>